Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo sapiens meet Super Sapiens. We had to write our dream and our, like our top goal in life. And mine, I wrote down, make a difference in the health and wellness um, industry or discover something that makes a change in the health and wellness industry. No and I have the date written and I think it's, I think it's like 2010 or 2011 and I found it and I, a, a few years ago. So now I keep it in my wallet. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and welcome to this episode of the Super Sapiens podcast. I'm Zylan Fnake. With me is Dr. David Lipman. I should stop saying that sarcastically, Dr. David Lipman, because you actually are a doctor. How are you doing? Good, mate. Really well. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, you actually injured yourself recently um, yep. running a trail run, and I've been very impressed by you because I'm of the opinion doctors make the worst patients. But you've been doing the rehab, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it helps that I have been able to... Like, I, I used to do a role where I gave people this rehab. So, A, I'm relatively uniquely and unfortunately positioned in terms of being able to know what to do, but also um, have some good people that I can reach out to, to get advice. And, and then finally, like I know the importance of it. So the sort of stuff I'm pretty meticulous with, uh, I tend to agree with you that doctors are terrible patients. Um, but yeah, I've been doing the rehab twice a day, plus doing some extra other stuff. And uh, yeah, hopefully can be back running sooner or later, but um, you know, if nothing else, Phil is really happy that I'm injured because, you know, he keeps telling me how he wants to catch me in Berlin Marathon, even though I'm not running. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it gives him a bit of a head start. So I'm anticipating him running 241 in uh, Berlin. Otherwise, it's a failure. So he's going, re he's going really well. That's our CEO and co-founder, Phil Sutherland. Um, how did the injury happen? Uh, I was running a trail race here, uh, wearing a bunch of sensors, including obviously Super Sapiens. Collecting some data um, with Andrew Raw, uh, which is a really cool company. Um, was doing a little bit of stuff with them. One of the guys lives here, so uh, they basically did the pacing plan for Peter Engdahl, previous guest, uh, for his win at uh, the CC at Marathon du Mont Blanc, I think, and maybe the C no and the CCC. So anyway, long story short, I was running this race, and as got to the top of this climb and then started descending. It was a fairly steep um, piece of four-wheel drive track fire road and stepped on a rock and just rolled my ankle really badly and then ran down another 5Ks on it, uh, seeing if it would come good and, and tweaked it halfway down again. And I thought, okay, that's it. And um, yeah, so it's a uh, badly sprained ankle, uh, rehabbing pretty hard and swelling's coming down slowly and, and we go from there. Well, well done for putting in the work and being diligent. I have it on good authority that some of the rehab has been taking place over Instagram DM, DMs by a physio mates of yours. Yes. I presume. Yep. <laughs> you see, I've you're been sending DMing them this uh, friend of mine and uh, very appreciative of their advice. It's coming back. So, uh, and, and appreciative to have people, as I said, that, that I can reach out to who will A, respond and B, um, sort of take the time. Cool. Before we get to this episode's guest, Christy Storochuk, um, and I want you to listen to this episode because there's some very interesting Zone 2 debates, some very interesting faster training debates. This is a good episode. But before we get there, um, we have some things happening in the Super Sapiens community, David. Yeah, well, I mean, the quota 
for this episode is being met. Uh, your video, the video we did about you and your uh, journey to Kona and, and how Kona was, which is a really cool video. I, I, you know, all jokes aside, that that video is pretty moving and pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. Um, that is going. It'll be live by the time this episode is out. Um, so that'll be on our YouTube channels. So check that out. Um, I think it's about ten minutes. Yeah, right somewhere there. Yeah, yeah. yeah Do you actually mind if we just spend the next thirty minutes talking about my Kona experience? Do you mind if I just uh, get going? I mean, I mind, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, give the people what they want. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's move on then. Um, <laughs> no, it is good. Go check out that uh, that video. Uh, and the other one was a shout out. Obviously, um, we record these intros before the episode is published. Unsurprisingly. Um, no, no surprises there. So Matt uh, Marcotte, a previous podcast guest, uh, got a late, late last minute entry to the PTO US Open, which will have happened after this podcast goes out, but is happening in a few days from when we were recording. Uh, and that's really cool for him. It's a really good opportunity. We talked to him at the time about you know going pro, those sort of things. And obviously he has gone pro and yeah, it's exciting. It's super cool to see him go. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he's easily ranked last, right? He didn't get it. He's not top 30. He got a late entry. Um, he's probably ranked outside of the top 40. And so I wouldn't be surprised if he scalps one person or two people, though. He's a pretty pretty impressive athlete, and he's only on the up upswing. So, uh, yeah. Very impressive because um, he's at medical school at the same time. Medical school, now racing on a pro license, and he's not just making up the numbers. The races he's, in, he's been entering, he's been doing really, really well in. So I'm really interested to see how he goes in this stacked field, which... We will know about by now. <laughs> um, and then I think I, I saw this man during the, the Tour de France, former professional cyclist Christian van der Velde was doing some commentary on the motorbike in the Tour de France. So um, the Tour puts some people on, on motorbikes with a camera. They go between the peloton, the breakaway, etc. So they're really in the race, in the action. So they experience what the riders experience, you know, going fast, descending, ascending, and he put something out about his glucose response in the race. Yeah, it was cool. We, we reposted this on social media. I'm not sure which one it was, if, if not all of them. Uh, yeah, just, you know, similar to you, you posted and, and we reshared it um, as a company around supporting and your glucose for that, right? It's the same sort of thing as excitement, stress, uh, fear. Those things are all, uh, they all mobilize glucose um, and via adrenaline or cortisol or all of the above. So, Super cool to see that uh, live and, and, you know, Christian, I think on Twitter, you will be able to see it or it's now called X. So on X, you'll be able to see um, his, yeah, his, I don't know what that's called. Whatever he put out, if that's called a tweet still, I don't know what that's called, but <laughs> that thing, he did the thing on X and then now there's some some data from our sensors. So worthwhile checking it out. It's really cool to see, um, you know, how high his glucose got while descending. Uh, I think it was descending on one of the technical descents uh, on a motorbike. Yeah, and then you're referring to my glucose. That was on top of the cold tourmalade during the Tour de France FUM of Zwift. Um, I was there supporting my friend Ashley Mulman Passio. The tourmalade was the decisive stage of the race. You, we were up there. You say that you say that like she wasn't a previous podcast guest, mate. Oh, sorry. Yes, uh, previous. Uh, first and foremost, my friend. I'm actually staying at ours right now, recording this from House uh, <laughs> Rocker Corpus Cycling, but uh, in my professional capacity. Former guest on the podcast, professional cyclist, <laughs> Ashley Mulman Passio. Um, but yeah, we were up there at the finish line supporting her. And man, I was shaking. I was nervous. Her husband was like 
we were both shaking and nervy. And my wife was like, are you freezing? Are you getting cold? And she realized, no, I was so nervous, especially as the race went on last 10Ks, last 5Ks up this crazy climb. Afterwards, I opened up the app and saw my glucose response. Man, my glucose was running high. Like I was doing, I don't know, zone three training or something. And it was just, it went up there and it just stayed up there for most of the stage. I'm not sure... Um, I've ever experienced something like that, but I'm guess I'm guessing you're not surprised by something like that. No, I mean neither uh, professionally. Like that doesn't surprise me you know, on a physiological level, nor anecdotally, because I've I've seen similar when I was coaching, when I was still coaching team sports uh, and and using Super Sapiens. It was a real eye opener as to why I needed to stop coaching team sports. I guess. Um, so, long story short, very stressful. So yes, uh, doesn't surprise me at all, and uh, and probably one of the more interesting edge use cases as a stress monitor for people. Yeah, very interesting. As David mentioned, I put up on my Instagram, Super Sapiens re reposted it, but maybe after publishing this, I'll pop it up again for you to see. Really, really interesting. Um, let's get to this episode's guest, Christy Storochuk. This is a goodie. Christy is a PhD candidate in muscle physiology at Queen's University with a goal of contributing to our understanding of diet, food timing, exercise, and metabolism. She is wildly passionate and curious about all things diet, lifestyle, metabolic flexibility, aging, and longevity. You may recognize Christy from her work in science communication with the Zero Longevity app and on Dom D'Agostino's personal blog, ketonutrition.org. Christy is a level one CrossFit coach, passionate CrossFitter herself, and an ex-NCAA Division I volleyball player. She also has an epic garden and personal gym and loves a 30-day challenge. Christy, welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and quite an honor. Well, thanks very much. We've uh, you and I have been communicating offline for a bit. Had some PhD exams to get through, which is exciting. So, uh, congratulations on getting through those. No mean feat. Thank you. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Like, what did you? What was your undergraduate in? Because I know I know the answer to this, so this will be good. <laughs> yes, it's quite unrelated to exercise physiology. Uh, botany was my undergrad, so I left high school with the goal of becoming a naturopathic doctor. And plant science seemed like a good track to understand plant metabolism because most of naturopathic medicine and supplements and the natural health world is related to these plant compounds. So I was like, oh, I'll become an expert in plants. <laughs> so I did my undergrad in uh, plant science and uh, obviously later turned the tables and went into research and now I'm in a PhD program, um, an exercise physiology PhD program. So very different background. However, I mean, does your undergrad really mean that much? I feel like it just teaches you how to learn. Um, so I got that experience at least. <laughs> how did you make the switch over to, to metabolic health? Because I'm fascinated by this. The world expects a lot of us to choose who you're going to be in the sense of your career when you're 17, 18, 19. But you don't even know yourself then, you know. Is that, did that play a role in, you know, I guess getting to know yourself and then switching to metabolic health? Well, I guess actually I am still on the same track as I set out because it was always related to, like, health, Um and I've always been interested in diet, nutrition, exercise from a very young age. My 
my grandparents own um, a health food store. So every summer I would go live with them and work at this natural health food store. And we, I would see all sorts of healers, like naturopaths, but even like homeopathic practitioners and all sorts of like across the board. And so I was exposed to that at a really young age. And I remember having a like a Bible called like the vitamin and mineral Bible. And I was probably 15 and I was trying to memorize like every vitamin and every mineral. And there's like highlight notes throughout it. And uh, so I've just, this has really been my environments from a really young age. My sister's an naturopathic doctor as well. And so I feel like my transition into the metabolic health space and exercise, um, the exercise world had is really on this that same track as what I was interested in. I even have a note. I'm really just spilling out all my my passions here, but I have a note that I keep in my wallet that I wrote in like some I don't even know what course it was in high school, but we had to write our dream and our like our top goal in life. And mine I wrote down make a difference in the health and wellness um industry or discover something that makes a change in the health and wellness industry. No and way. I have the date written and I think it's I think it's like 2010 or 2011 and I found it and I a, a few years ago so now I keep it in my wallet but it just reminds me that like I am on this same track that I do really want to I have always just been so passionate about improving others health and obviously I'm super interested in for myself and that's why I've kind of experimented with everything as you mentioned in my intro I love a good 30-day challenge so uh, I do kind of expose myself to these even extremes people think maybe I'm a bit extreme but I like to do it for fun it let it allows me to speak from experience but I would say that like making the jump into exercise physiology really wasn't a change in um, interests it really was just maybe just a natural progression as I learned more and maybe as we'll get into it, or I'm sure it'll come up, but exercise is probably the most important drug we have access to because it really does have these drug-like effects in our body. Um, so that's, I guess, I'm, I'm happy I've landed in um, an exercise physiology program because I do think it's one of the most powerful lifestyle behaviors that we could adopt. So you mentioned wanting to make a difference and change things and wanting to be a practitioner. So how did you end up doing research? Because that's not always a straight line, right? So I had similar thoughts and actively avoided a research uh, career, right? So whereas you went into one, so how'd that decision come about? One, watching my sister go through naturopathic um, college and getting her degree. It's very expensive. Um, I mean, it's really intense. It is like medical school. Uh, and so... I guess like financially, I was like, oh, a PhD is a free route to a doctorate. I mean, you don't get paid very much, but at least you're not going really in debt. Um, and I had been volunteering and working for Dom Diagostino, which was also mentioned in the intro. So I left my undergrad and immediately started working for Dom, um, which was that changed my entire life. I think that I was emailing a bunch of professors um, who were studying the ketogenic diet because I was interested in nutrition and diet. And the ketogenic diet was the only diet that had like a, a biomarker associated with it. So you, you know if you're in ketosis because you're elevating ketone bodies. And that 
is a specific molecule that we can attach to an outcome versus like a vegan diet or a vegetarian or paleo. There's no um, objective outcome with it other than any sort of like health metric that we're, we're studying. So I really liked that you could, you could follow this biomarker. And so I was messaging basically like all professors studying the ketogenic diet and looking for PhD opportunities. Dom ended up uh, hiring me into his company and I started working in science communication instead of um, going in and being a student in his lab because he wasn't looking for new students at the time. And I kind of just rode that wave for about three to four years working for him. I got to do some volunteering in the lab as well. So we did some work with NASA, which was um, an incredible experience. We all lived in the Florida Keys for a month together with his lab. And there were, we were running, a, there was a big experiment going on. So NASA has, I think, seven analog missions. And one of them takes place in the Florida Keys where the astronauts and the aquanauts that's what they're called. Um, so it's a mix of scientists and astronauts. And they live on the bottom of the ocean for 10 days. And it's a space analog mission. And it allows you to study different um, outcomes associated that we might see in space. Um, so Dom's lab was was part of the research group. And I was lucky enough to be a volunteer and, and witness all of it and get, get to um, do some data collection on the astronauts. So I got some research experience, but was also working in science communication relating related to ketogenic diets, metabolic therapies, fasting naturally came into the picture just because that is another method of inducing ketosis. Um, and then I was working alongside, um, it was called Zero, um, the Zero Fasting app at the time, but now it's Zero Longevity. And, uh, and then I finally was just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go back to school. Like I can't just keep doing this. Like I was too passionate. I had too much, too many questions. And the only way I could answer my questions and, and really get to my curiosity was to be in a research setting. So that's when I started applying for PhD positions. And then I started at Queens, which coming up on two years, which it all happens in the blink of an eye. That's awesome. I think um, I had some similar experiences sending emails around for a medical elective, and I'm always surprised at how these huge names are so helpful. They have every reason not to be, and they have no reason to help you. And they're always just like, sure, like, do you want me to talk to this person for you or come in and do this? And um, I was really surprised by that. Um, I actually made a huge error. I won't name the person, but I had a textbook with his name on it looking just above my computer, and I emailed him seven times in a row, Miss spelling his name and each time he corrected me and I didn't realize it. Oh no. Um, and he was still the most helpful guy in the world. So um, for those who know my background, they may actually be Classic able to, day. yeah, for those who know my background, they may be able to pick out who that is, but, but most won't, which is good. Oh my God. Uh, he was an absolute gentleman about it and I was an absolute idiot. So that's, that's so uh, that was a real <laughs> shrinking moment for me. I, when I realized that I was like, Oh, okay. Yes. That, yeah, I'm an idiot. Yeah. yeah. But no, it is amazing, especially in academia. Like, I like these very busy professors. Professors are very busy. They have a lot on their plate and they reply to all my questions. Like, I think that is maybe, maybe people don't think about it, but I think one of something I'm proud of is just like, I'll just go to the source. Like I'll, 
instead of trying to like read papers all day and try and figure out questions, like I'll send an email to the person who conducted the study. And it's a really quick way to get answers. And it's also a nice networking opportunity. And like, you never know, I guess, what comes out of it. But I'm not afraid to uh, reach out to people and ask questions. And I'm always amazed at how generous people are with their time. It, it is really, really amazing. And let's uh, let's talk your PhD. Talk to us about it. So two years, it's pretty quick, but let's talk about it. What, what's it in? What are you doing? Yeah. So or what have you done? I chose this PhD program because the, um, my lab specifically looks at mitochondrial function. So coming from the metabolic health space, obviously there's a, lots of talk around mitochondrial function and how important mitochondria are for metabolic health. So I thought, what? better program than to study mitochondrial function. And uh, my supervisor is amazing. He's like, he gives me so much flexibility and he entertains all my, all my wild ideas and curiosities. So uh, he's a skeptic by nature, especially with like the space that I came from, just like the ketogenic space. It is quite controversial. Like it's not, I was I thought that was the whole world because <laughs> it was my whole world until I branched out and was like, oh, most people don't think this way. Like they don't think, uh, I don't even have an example, but like, I just thought that I just took a lot um, at surface level. And once I branched out from that, I realized that I need to understand things better. And I think that my PhD experience so far has been very humbling. I haven't really changed my mind on much, but I just, I know that I need to understand it to a deeper level because there are arguments against some of the things that I thought were just general knowledge. Um, but anyway, so my lab studies mitochondrial function. We do a lot of high intensity um, studies. And uh, so my I'm bringing into the lab really just nutrient timing, perhaps macronutrient composition, but I'm also, thanks to Super Sapiens, um, going to be looking at CGM data and how nutrient timing around exercise affects postprandial um, glycemia after exercise. Um, we're doing a pilot study right now, and we're also extending that to fasting glucose levels the next day. So whether you're doing a bout of high intensity intervals in the fasted or the fed state, does that change how we respond to food later in the day? And does that affect our fasting levels the next day? Um, so that's currently being wrapped up right now. I haven't actually looked at any of the data yet, um, but that'll be interesting to see. And then future plans are really to do a training study and to see how what we eat around our exercise. And really it comes down to carbohydrates and insulin and seeing the effects on substrate utilization during the bout of exercise and how that might change things later in the day. And, and I guess you guys are very familiar with like why this matters and like glucose regulation is such an important part of our metabolic health. So I guess where I'm coming from and why I'm, interested in these questions is because most people just don't exercise enough and most people are not metabolically healthy. So I'm assuming most of your interests and maybe your listeners 
are interested in performance. And I will admit that performance is really um, in the backseat of my mind. I am more interested in like the metabolic health benefits of exercise and how can we essentially get the best bang for our buck because most people, like I said, aren't exercising enough. So if we could, Alec, if we could, I guess, squeeze as much out of a single bout of exercise as we can and get those health promoting effects of exercise, how, how does what we eat around exercise, does that change the benefits of exercise for someone who might need that extra bit? Whereas like an athlete, their volume and training volume is so high that these conversations, I, I do think that nutrition plays a big role even in the athlete's adaptations and performance as well. But it my, I guess my main goal and objectives with what I'm studying is, is really related to like the average person and really just trying to promote health and trying to do that the best way we can. David is uh, the opposite. He eats too much and doesn't exercise enough. So be an interesting case study with him. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Christy, what's your, you're talking like this and I'm wondering what your friend circle is like. Like are people going out to dinner with you and they're scared to to order something or watch what they eat or, you know, like scared to, to tell you that they missed a couple of sessions exercising. What's your friend group like? Yeah. And I hate that. Like I have no, I'm actually very, like I do things for myself with zero judgment on what's going on around me because I know that there are a hundred ways to skin a cat. Like you can go out and eat pizza and cake and drink beer and be completely fine. It's all in the context of what else you're doing in your life. Like I would never judge anybody like, and, and people feel that way though. Like they, I don't like when people feel uncomfortable around me about eating certain things. And I don't want them to think like, Oh, Christy never does that. Or like, if I do decide one day to have the slice of pizza, I'm, I'm kind of crazy, like I said, like I, I don't need that slice pizza, I'll say no. Um, but like if I did, people would be like shocked. And I don't want that either. Like I want, I don't want like opinions about what I'm eating or what other people are eating because we are all doing it. Also, the setting of eating out is so different from what we do on a normal day to day. So um, I really do believe that like, health is the outcome of what we do most of the time you're you going out with friends and having a night having a fun night is not going to affect you if that's so infrequent i i do think that there is balance in life and that will look different for everybody for me moderation isn't really something i strive for just because i don't i guess we, we all interact with food differently. So yes. Anyways, my to answer your question that people do, I think, feel or like want to know what I'm eating or want to know what I'm doing when they're around me. Um, and I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> because I, I'm, I, what I'm doing is not virtue sing signaling for what you should be doing as well. And, and we're all, like, I don't want to act like I know all the answers because I certainly don't. What I'm doing for myself is what is the best that I can do with the knowledge that I have. And that's always evolving. So I hope that my behaviors are always evolving as well. Beautifully said. Yeah. Oh, look, I've, I've definitely been in your seat before. 
Uh, I've definitely had that people feeling that way around me as well. Um, I also think uh, the context really matters here. So you made a really good point of like, you know, if you go out infrequently or whatever, it's different to not, I would say even that context is different. Like the net effect of it may be different. So you may go out, there may only be, you know, whatever food that you don't necessarily think is healthy or whatever. And you're going out in the context of social, a social scenario with friends. And the net of that whole circumstance may actually be positive because of the social interaction, all those aspects that are separate to the interaction of the nutrients with your body, right? Because it's never only I'm eating. It's like, what's the context around that, right? Because you can even eat, I would say even a healthy meal eaten too quickly or eaten at the wrong time of day may be somewhat detrimental, right? Like there, there is that real possibility if you want to be really nitty gritty about it. So I think, um, yeah, context is really, really important. And yeah, I, I would encourage people to not, if you Christy or somebody else, I wouldn't be too concerned what's on their plate. It's, uh, you know, we're all making choices the best we can. Totally. Yeah. It's very hard to communicate context though, because mm. Like you, even just the simple messaging of like sugar is bad or you should eat less carbohydrates or like there's just, yeah, like, well, did you work out today? Did you sleep well? Like there's just so many different factors influencing how we're going to respond to a certain food and simple messaging gets confusing because then if we think like, oh, okay, sugar's bad, but I'll eat this sugar-free chocolate because I'm like trying to lose weight. So I'm cutting sugar. But then you start eating like all this like packaged keto food. And it's like, well, you're kind of, you're missing the point if we're just substituting. And like, I think we, we don't understand, like, I think more of the conversation needs to shift towards diet quality versus like individual macronutrients, because then like we start justifying, like the more comfortable you get with a new diet, the more you start justifying and substituting and like your what you you first cut out brownies because you switched to a keto diet but then a month later you realize oh erythritol and cocoa powder and coconut oil tastes really good when you bake it and now i have brownies again <laughs> but they're not they don't have sugar in them or flour so it's like we 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 will we will turn any diet into a way to sustain our old habits without just recognizing that the habit was probably the problem in the first place. And that's where diet quality really comes in and is a, probably a more powerful player because if we think about whole foods and we think about um, like nutrient density, then maybe the coconut oil with erythritol and cocoa powder won't really fit fit into those categories anymore. So I think that's that that's something very outside of my research, but it's something that I'm passionate in promoting because I just think like there's power in whole foods and minimizing ultra processed foods and refined sugars and and I guess I'm coming back to that simple messaging, but at the same time it's with the, the additive perspective of like focusing on what you should be adding into your diet versus like focusing on what you should be cutting out because hopefully if we're focusing on like the quality, then we're naturally going to, we're, there's just no room for ultra processed foods. But again, I'm going off in like different tangents here because no, it's all it. unrelated to my no, research. I love it, I would love it. <laughs> no, but it is all related. It's all tangential to your research, right? It's the space you're in. I think that message, I, I've been messing around with the diet wars for years, just like observing them, right? And I think, uh, 
one of the ways I started to think about it is what's not up for debate. And there's not a lot of people debating we should be eating more ultra processed foods. <laughs> it's a pretty safe bet to say that, that less of that's good, right? I've also found in coaching people through behavior change that your approach there, which is let's focus on what to include rather than exclude is a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, that seems to work a lot better for humans is eat as much of X, Y, and Z as you can, or let's add X, Y, and Z. And then the rest of it will start to sort itself out, right? And self-organize around that. And I think that is a little bit more sustainable, a little bit easier for people to deal with. It's just not, you know, like you said, the beginners understand in uh, black and white and the experts understand in shades of gray. And we're all sort of on that realm from beginner to expert. The problem is we all eat. So we all think we have a level of expertise. Right, exactly. So it's really, it's really hard. Yeah. But yeah, um, the more you dig into it, like I was saying, like starting being in academia has been very humbling because I used to think in a very like straight line and narrow way, myopic. But now I've, I've come to recognize and appreciate the different, the different ways we all can eat and achieve health. And uh, I guess that comes into behavior change as well. And just like working with in- individuals, we are all individuals. Like I don't have kids. I have control over what comes into my house. I have control over my day to day. I don't, I work from home most of the time. Like just like our lifestyles are so, are like everything is in the context of our own individual lifestyles. And I think that's an, an, another important thing to recognize. And that even comes into play when we're thinking about exercise and like our behaviors around exercise, because like, if you only have 30 minutes to exercise each day, that's a very different conversation than uh, someone like a professional athlete who dedicates their life to exercise. And like, I think that's another problem with the communication around exercise as well. And like, just like, what's an optimal protocol and what should we all be doing? Because we conflate what athletes are doing with the general public and think that we should be doing X, Y, or Z based on what they're doing. And it's just, it's two different worlds. We're two different, like genetically, we're very different as well. So um, like, I, I just have come to a ground where if you tell me like something works for you, I, and you have objective markers, like kudos to you, I will not argue with you. Like, I, I believe that there's multiple ways that you are achieving whatever you whatever you're doing. But that's no fun. That objectivity is no fun. Yeah, you must not sure. be on Twitter. I'm sure you don't have a Twitter account. You're not fighting with anyone. You think to you <laughs> clear. You know? Um I'm I'm the dummy on the call here, Christy. So maybe let's let's take a step back. Can you explain to me what metabolic health is? Yeah, so I mean I don't um I don't know if there's like a clear definition other than like, I don't like the um, definition that has been used. That is the absence of metabolic disease because the absence of something does not mean health. You could be on a trajectory towards metabolic disease and be considered metabolically healthy in that case, which I would not consider metabolic health. Um, So metabolic disease though, is the constellation of five different objective markers, which I think I'm going to try and rhyme them off off the top of my head, but I think it's high blood pressure, high triglycerides, um, low HDL, waist circumference, and high fasting blood sugar. I think I got all five of those right. But if you have like three out of five, you are considered you are considered someone with metabolic um, metabolic disease um, or what am I metabolic syndrome <laughs> and. Uh, so the, the absence of metabolic syndrome should not be considered metabolic health, but 
if you are in optimal in all five of those categories, then I, I would consider that metabolic health, but we can, we can measure that along a trajectory and see which direction that we're heading. Um, and we should be trying to always either be maintaining or improving our metabolic health. Um, but the way I, I guess, view metabolic health, well, yes, it is in the context of those, those five markers, but um, we could, we could, in metabolic health could be like, I also just associate insulin sensitivity with metabolic health as well. And there's, there's all, there's so many different, I guess, objective markers that we could be including in this conversation. But I think we focus a lot in the research, at least around um, the five markers of metabolic syndrome and how those markers are changing. Yeah, I think um, medicine does really well at um, labeling something and then creating criteria and then everything gets based on that. And it sort of suffers a little bit from Goodhart's law where it's like, those are not the only things that are important. So like if you, for those listeners, pause the podcast, Google metabolic map and just have a look at it. That's metabolism. It's all about metabolic processes and how they interact. There are many things there and any one change creates absolute chaos in, in many systems. So I say that to say that it's not as simple as one of those markers is off. Let's address that. It's like, there's something in metabolism that's off and we need to address that. And, and that downstream will eventually affect those markers. So uh, I think it's, your view is very nuanced, Christine. I think it's really important is that like, yes, those five markers are important, but there are many aspects that contribute to those five markers being good, bad, or indifferent, right? And, and habits, behaviors, lifestyle set those up. Right. So good habits, behaviors, lifestyle predispose you to then have better metabolic health. Yeah. And like, if we're, yeah, if we're thinking about metabolism, so like how well can we use, how well can we metabolize fuels is a huge component of metabolic health and that will change these objective markers that I just mentioned. So how well can you metabolize glucose? How well can you metabolize fatty acids? Those things are related to the outcomes associated with metabolic health or metabolic disease. And that, for the listeners, that's what we're talking about when we talk about metabolic flexibility, right? The ability to, to utilize different fuel sources at appropriate times. Yes, exactly. So metabolic flexibility is essentially just defined as our ability to transition between periods of burning primarily carbohydrates to periods of burning fat. So if we're going to go from rest to exercise, we should be able to efficiently and effectively upregulate fatty acid oxidation. So we're burning more fats. Whereas if we are transitioning from a fasted to a fed state, and we're now in, say we're, are, we're eating a bit of carbohydrates, we're increasing insulin levels, we should be able to switch to burning carbohydrates in response to that insulin. So a metabolic inflexible condition would be someone who can't who can't respond appropriately to insulin to upregulate carbohydrate oxidation. And that would be a sign of insulin resistance or reduced insulin sensitivity. And if we can't upregulate fatty acid oxidation in response to a fast or low intensity to moderate intensity exercise, then that is a warning sign as well and a red flag that there is a lack of metabolic flexibility because we're not using the appropriate fuel at the right time. Um, but these things can be trained. And that's where exercise comes in because exercise is a very powerful stimulus to improve metabolic flexibility. Should you be working on it? Should you be looking to develop it? 
metabolic flexibility? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, metabolic inflexibility is associated with the pathology and um, of, of metabolic disease. So, and this is why I'm passionate about mitochondrial health and mitochondrial function because mitochondria are responsible for the bulk of our energy production and mitochondrial dysfunction is associated with metabolic inflexibility. So it, the better we can support our mitochondria, the more mitochondria that we have, the more we use our mitochondria, um, the more we promote mitochondrial adaptations, then in theory, the more metabolically flexible you should be, and that should correlate with metabolic health. And so you mentioned before exercise is stimulus. Talk us through that. Like, what does that look like, right? Because exercise takes many forms. Xylin, Xylin right. starts exercising. He gets into zone two and he's torching his carbohydrate stores straight away. He's not the most metabolically flexible human. So what does he need to do? Well, then I would argue that he's not in zone okay. two. Okay, cool. Let's, yeah, um, let's go there. Let's do it. Wow. <laughs> because, I mean, zone two... Zone two is, is dependent on your own personal fitness status. So if some, like an uh, overweight or obese um, participant, a zone two, zone two would essentially be like walking because zone two is defined as like our lactate threshold. So just below our lactate threshold before lactate accumulates beyond two millimolars because um, we have this inflection point in lactate when we're increasing intensities of exercise. So zone two is just below that lactate threshold where we're essentially, I mean, the definition or the way people talk about it is that we're at this maximum fat oxidation capacity, um, which would be, which to burn fat, you need to be using your mitochondria. So the theory, or I guess the storyline is that we're maxing out mitochondrial oxidative capacity or not even capacity. I don't like the word capacity because we're never maximizing our capacity. I don't think mitochondria are the limiting factor in how much fat we can burn. Um, but we're, we're essentially, we're running our mitochondria as, as high as we can with an exercise intensity. And the longer you do that, then your the theory or the story, I guess, is that we're, we're using our mitochondria and we're training them to become better fat burners. Um, so I forget what your initial question was, though. I guess my question is about so somebody who's relatively metabolically inflexible, who's using a lot of carbohydrate at uh, you know when they shouldn't be, I guess, or when they shouldn't be in inverted commas of the, or in in quotation marks of this. You're relatively metabolically inflexible. You burn a lot of carbohydrates early. Your fat oxidation capacity is low. Right. So how do we, like, what should he be doing or what should they be doing to improve that, I guess? You know, so is it high intensity work? Is it more threshold? Is it long, slow distance? Is it zone two? Like, what are we doing? Right, right, right. Um, honestly, I, so I came into this topic with a very, like, unbiased approach. Like, I just wanted to know the answer. And from the literature. I wanted to know like, okay, what does the literature show? Not what are people saying on podcasts? Um, and so <laughs> I... It's a really, it's a real inception <laughs> meta moment, isn't it? Of like, let me tell you on a podcast. I love it. Yeah, it's yeah. Awesome. The irony in this. So just don't trust me. Just, just kidding. Um, but <laughs> I, I couldn't, I just don't buy the argument that 
because the argument for zone two is related to mitochondrial function and mitochondrial health. And I personally just don't buy that argument just because of what we know regulates um, mitochondrial adaptations. So as exercise intensity increases, so the traditional like general knowledge of exercise metabolism is that as we're increasing exercise intensity, so we go from rest and low intensity to moderate intensity to high intensity, we're burning more fat in the beginning until we reach this point where fat can no longer sustain our ATP uh, resynthesis. So we need to call in on carbohydrates to help us out um, to so that we can sustain a higher exercise intensity. So then we start burning more carbohydrates and fat oxidation goes down. And so at high intensities, fat, uh, fat oxidation is low, carbohydrate oxidation is high, but at lower intensities, fat is dominating, carbohydrate is low. So that's why we burn more glycogen when we're working out at high intensities. Um, but burning carbohydrates doesn't mean that we're not promoting fat adaptation. It, in contrast, the, the adaptations that promote mitochondrial biogenesis are actually triggered by those high intensities because we essentially, I think of mitochondrial adaptations as like a demand-driven, so there's demand-driven theories about a lot of things, even cognitive decline. So if you stop giving yourself cognitive stimulus, you're going to maybe accelerate cognitive de decline. And I think about that in terms of mitochondria, where if we're not putting excess demand, because our body like our body responds to stress. So our mitochondria want that stress. We, we need to exceed what it can do so that we tell it, okay, you need to grow and you need to improve and you need to get better so that next time we do this same bout of exercise, we're better able to manage that energy homeostasis. Because at the end of the day, all of these adaptations to exercise are so that we can basically sustain homeostasis in response to stress. So we're always trying to resynthesize ATP as quickly as we can so that we can sustain muscle contractions. Um, and so if we have more mitochondria and greater mitochondrial capacity, then we're better able to match ATP synthesis to ATP use. Um, but once we exceed that, then we get this accumulation of these byproducts. And maybe your listeners are familiar with lactate. So the more glucose we're burning as a necessary byproduct, we're producing lactate. And lactate is just uh, is telling us that we are burning through carbohydrates. And but that's also a signal that we have exceeded our mitochondrial metabolism and we've switched into burning carbs. But that is the signal that tells our mitochondria that they need to adapt in order to, to be better, bigger and stronger to, so that the next time we exercise, we don't have that huge metabolic disturbance. And so we're always trying to reduce the metabolic disturbance. And that's also like why progressive overload, which most people would be familiar with that with resistance training, progressive overload, as in like increasing your weight each time to get stronger. We also need to do that with endurance um, adaptations as well. Because if we think about our muscle mass in terms of resistance training, if we think about mitochondrial mass in terms of the endurance adaptations, the progressive overload tells tells our mitochondria that they need to adapt, they need to be bigger, they need to be stronger. Um, so with the zone two, we're 
we're below the threshold that causes the accumulation of the signals that promote mitochondrial adaptation. So to be honest, I'm still confused. I'm, I'm almost like I'm at the point where I'm like, what am I missing? <laughs> because I'm like, they, I respect the people who are promoting zone two and I want to believe them, but I just, I'm like, what am I missing here? Because AMP, ADP, calcium, they're all increasing in an intensity dependent manner. And then we know that the expression of genes and proteins that promote mitochondrial adaptation are also increasing in an intensity dependent manner. And so I just don't under, I don't understand how zone two would promote these mitochondrial adaptations. And to be honest, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that promoting zone two to like general public could potentially be a disservice because we, if we, if most people are not exercising enough or not as frequently as they should be in general, then those people should be focusing on intensity. The, the people who might benefit from zone two are those with extremely high training volumes where they just can't sustain the amount of high intensity. Uh, they can't do high intensity every single day and they need, but they need that overall training volume. So zone two kind of allows someone with a huge training volume um, to be able to recover. I'm putting <laughs> is up, that David? No, this is your Instagram oh, account. And it's the first thing I saw when I visited your Instagram when we were doing research was you doing a session, 90% of it in zone four, second most in zone five, and hardly any in zone one, two, and three. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I, cause I, I think about it for myself because I care about mitochondrial health and I care about metabolic health and I care about longevity and aging and all this stuff and I hear people promoting zone two so I'm like oh should I be doing zone two then but that would mean that I'm substituting my 30 to 40 minutes of working out a day because I, I really don't train that much um, but if I were to sub in zone two for that because I'm being told that that's what I need for mitochondrial health, then I think I would do be doing myself a disservice because I'm now I'm giving up a more potent stimulus for something for a less potent stimulus. So unless I was working out for two to three hours, then maybe I would consider a zone two session because it takes like two to three hours to get the same signals if we're doing like a low, low intensity, something like zone two to get those same signals that we need to, that tell our cells and our muscles to adapt. We need two to three hours to get those same signals that you could get if you were working out at a higher intensity. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm saying that duration is super important to consider. And if we're only working out for 30 to 60 minutes, then zone two really I mean, you're not, it's not bad. You're, you're at least increasing energy expenditure. You're increasing energy flux and energy flux is really important. So just pulling energy through the system is really important for health in general. So um, I don't think it's bad, but I think if you're subbing it in for something that you and like, personally, I enjoy high intensity exercise. And again, like, I don't want to be like, I don't, I, I just, can't accept, I guess, the zone two 
argument that like so to the to the point where I'm subbing in zone two for my high intensity work where I'm not at a point I'm not at risk of overtraining like my 30 to 40 minute workouts I I can recover from them fine I'm doing fine so um, unless you're I guess at risk of overtraining then maybe zone two would be beneficial but I don't think that that applies to the general public yeah, I think there's tons that general public can learn from elite athletes and vice versa. There's no question there. Mm-hmm. And there's a spectrum, right? But where I think we fall down is assuming that because, uh, you know, somebody who's got a training volume of 12 hours a week or 13 hours a week does something, that that should scale down to somebody who's training for three hours a week. And it just isn't the case. It doesn't scale linearly like that. It scales differently because as you increase training volume, you cannot sustain the intensity. As you've mentioned, there's no, you know, Olaf Alexander-Boo, the Norwegian triathlon coach talks about an energy budget and he literally does it in calories. Like you can use whatever you want, but you have a budget of matches to spend. And if you're only going to spend them every little bit, every couple of days, like if you do 30 minutes a day, you could probably sustain high intensity every day without a concern. But once that goes to an hour a day, two hours a day, then it's different. Right. But our endurance athletes are going to be stoked to hear from you because you just told them they need to go harder via progressive <laughs> overload and that they, they need to go really long if they want and that they need to go really long if they want zone two stuff. They're just stoked. They get to like push their training. They've never been happier. Because <laughs> it's But it's an interesting point because you talked about people, you know, predominantly the world's problem, which is different to the, the podcast listeners, right? The world's problem is people aren't exercising enough. Right. We're talking about people who are pushing it arguably too much and want to do more right you're talking about people who want to do less and want the most efficient answer whereas most listeners want to do more right they oh how do i do more training because i love it right i love to spend time on my bike or i love that right it's a very different problem that people uh that, that we're solving and and that's not a bad thing it's just people need to understand the context of that rather than misinterpreting your words which is like hey i should be doing tons of high intensity and like no more zone two it's like no no like if you want to do a ton you have to do zone two or zone one because you just cannot sustain the output right and, and for the like i've done it i've done way too much i was of the an early opinion of mine was like runners did too much junk miles and so all of my training was at race pace or faster <laughs> i trained for a half marathon doing that i ran a really good half marathon doing that i got injured very shortly afterwards you know i was running three times a week of course i could sustain race pace or faster but you know i was always sore and always tired and couldn't work out why right as i was doing three runs a week of high intensity plus a whole bunch of strength work like unsurprisingly i ended up busted but you know, that was very different, right? So people need to understand the context there and or and or make the mistakes for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Right? Either way. So. Uh, yeah, no, it it isn't. Like, we do really have to appreciate the population that we're talking to. And unfortunately, I feel like Zone 2 has been blown up to the point where people like me or people who even work out less than me are, are thinking like, oh, okay, I'm going to do Zone 2, like, I'm going to, I'm going to prioritize zone two when, like I said, this could be missing out on like a missed opportunity to get greater benefit out of that exercise bout if we just push the intensity. And I love, I love the heroism promoted around zone two as well. Like I love when people promote or like post about being like 45 minutes of zone two. And it's just like, there's this heroism in it. And, and and I'm just thinking like you just did really easy exercise like it's, it's just funny and, the, and there's a reason to do it right like if you want to do that go do zone two fine enjoy yourself but like if you're choosing between the two and you hate both then go for the higher intensity stuff and be done right right, right? like Christy I love that you're not scared to I love that you're not scared to share your views so let's go to the next one fasted exercise 
Talk to us about fasted exercise. <laughs> Would you have any views? Yeah. And, and my views are always shifting on this topic as well. Just because, like, I guess there's just a lot more to understand about metabolism and adaptations than I once, I guess, appreciated. Because at the surface level, it may, like it seems like, okay, f- there's a nice storyline to it. It's like, okay, you're in this fasted state. You're all, you don't have any fuel on board. You're going to be burning your stored fuel for exercise. If you're promoting more of a metabolic stress, then you'll, you'll adapt more because we adapt to stress, like I said. Um, but, and, and, and I will, I'll say like, there's lots of studies showing that you can, there are differences in adaptations between whether you're fasted or fed. However, um, I just think that exercise itself gets us most of the way. Um, these are just like icing on top of the cake, but I will say that there are, there's some really cool studies in, um, like overweight or um, people who need need the health benefits from exercise and doing exercise in the fasted state does seem to promote greater health benefits um, in terms of insulin sensitivity um, than if you were exercising and doing moderate intensity in the carbohydrate fed state. And those studies are really interesting to me because um, like I said, getting the best bang for your buck out of that bout of exercise for someone who needs those health benefits. Well, I mean, we all need those health benefits, but I'm, but I mean, if someone is, isn't, doesn't enjoy exercise and they want to get the most out of it, then being in the, the fasted state may, may enhance those benefits, um, which is really cool and really powerful. Um, and that's, what's motivating me a lot. But when it comes to the adaptations, there definitely is different findings and i i haven't come to like a conclusion about what's promoting different adaptations but i will mention one study based on the conversation uh, based on what i mentioned previously with insulin sensitivity so they it was a training study i believe it was 12 weeks and i think they exercised three times a week this was in overweight men and the more so okay so fasted exercise if you're going to work out in the fasted state you are going to burn more fat than you would if you were in the carbohydrate fed state. And this simply comes down, I'm under the impression that this simply just comes down to insulin. So if we're increasing insulin, we're now shutting down lipolysis. So this means that we can't basically take the fats out of our stored adipose tissue and, and deliver those fatty acids to our muscles to burn. So we're inhibiting that um, if we're in the carbohydrate fed state. But we're in, inside the muscle, we're also inhibiting the breakdown of stored uh, fats within our muscles as well. So we're relying more on carbohydrates when we're in the carbohydrate-fed state. But in this training study, they showed that just delaying breakfast till after exercise, um, you the increase in fat oxidation with each bout of exercise was related to the improvements in insulin sensitivity. So the more fat that was burned during exercise the greater the improvements in insulin sensitivity after the 12 weeks, which is really cool and may suggest that our capacity to burn fat and the more the more we promote fat oxidation during exercise, the 
that's related to these health benefits of exercise. And so, so I do think that there is validity and use for fasted exercise. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's an argument that could be made about high intensity exercise, because the effects of fasted exercise are dependent on the duration, the timing of carbohydrates and the intensity of the exercise. So the, if you consume carbohydrates, there's actually a really cool study and your listeners might be interested in this. And they looked at meal timing and then looked at fuel substrate um, during moderate to high intensity exercise. I think it was 70% of VO2 max. Um, And they looked at exercise after two hours of eating, exercise after four hours of eating, exercise six hours after eating, exercise eight, and then 12 hours after eating as well. And they compared the fuel substrates Um, depending on the timing of those carbohydrates and it took so insulin went up and it came back down I think it came back down within like three three hours to baseline but it took six hours for fuel substrate utilization during exercise to basically return to the fasted overnight fasted level so um, if you are if you do want to I, I guess promote the fuel use that you would see after an overnight fast, you have to wait at least six hours from your last um, meal to get that increase in fat oxidation. But that's also a cool message in itself where you don't have to, I guess, exercise after an overnight fast, you could eat breakfast and work out six hours later. um, And you would still be you'd be getting that that effect on fuel utilization during exercise as as if you were in the overnight fasted state um but with high intensity exercise the effects of carbohydrate feeding and just being in the fasted state um it, it fuels the the fuels that we use at high intensities it becomes more similar um that it, there's less of a difference at high intensities because the fuel use that we're using at high intensities is very localized to the muscle. So we're using glycogen and the difference between moderate intensity exercise is that our liver is essentially bringing our spitting out glucose to fuel our muscles and we're burning fats from our adipose tissue. But at high intensity exercise, we're really burning like the fuels that are close in proximity to to our muscle cells. And that's why I think at high intensities, the the fuel substrate utilization becomes more similar, but this also occurs when we extend duration. So if you're in the fasted or fed state, and then you start a bout of exercise, um, by, I, I, I don't know the exact duration, but if you were to go for like two hours, your fuel substrate utilization would become, would gradually become more similar. Um, just and you would essentially just be in that. It wouldn't matter if you were faster or fed by the end of the exercise because your your fuel would be be the same. So duration and intensity really matter. Um, and I think that when it comes to blood glucose and blood insulin, it's it's also interesting because if you start, so if say someone's fat fasted and someone's eaten a hundred grams of carbohydrates. They're going to start with very different blood glucose levels, but over time, as the duration is extended, they're going to end with the exact same blood glucose level, um, which is really cool as well. Um, so it also just shows that exercise is a, 
a potent way to just lower our blood sugar. But when it comes like the CGM or I guess people are interested in blood, blood glucose levels. Um, and when we are in the fasted state and exercising at moderate intensities, blood glucose doesn't really change. Like it's very stable. Um, whereas if you exercise after a carbohydrate based meal, you actually do run the risk of becoming hypoglycemic and, and fasted exercise seems to protect against that hypoglycemia that could occur with, with, um, exercise just because there's something called the second meal effect where you eat a meal and then the second your lunch, you might have a lower postprandial glucose response to that meal because it's the second meal effect where your body's kind of primed for that second meal. And it, it is preserved even if you exercise. So if you eat and then you exercise and then you eat again, um, you, you do see that second meal effect still, uh, or sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm mixing things up, but if you eat and then you exercise, you're, you essentially are having an additive effect of insulin plus the insulin independent glucose uptake. So you're, you're promoting glucose uptake with insulin because you ate carbohydrates, but now you're promoting glucose uptake with exercise. And that does run the risk of dropping below baseline versus if you're in the fasted state, you don't have that insulin on board, but you do have the exercise, um, exercise dependent glucose uptake. And so you don't have that additive effect where your your liver is able to basically maintain blood glucose level and better match it because you don't have that insulin that's also confounding the the glucose uptake and you don't and you'll see more stable glucose um, response and I actually I ran I ran a half marathon for fun last year. I was going to ask you about this. I was going to ask you about this. I I'm not a runner, and I will say that loud and proud that I do not run. Um, but my friend convinced me to sign up for this half marathon, so I did it, and I did it basically fasted. I had some exogenous ketones before before the race, and that was it. We're going to ask you about that in a second. <laughs> okay. Um, but I was wearing I was wearing a CGM and. And my glucose was like pretty stable the entire time. Um, and the only time I guess I really see, I saw it, I do train fasted. That's just a personal preference. Um, and most of my exercise is high intensity. And with the CGM, um, I can see that the harder I work, the more glucose will spike, even in the fasted state. And that's just my liver spitting out glucose. And I love that aspect of wearing a CGM because you can see physiology in real time. You're like, oh, well, I didn't eat. So where's that glucose coming from? Oh, well, it has to be coming from my liver because that's the only storage form of glucose that can contribute to blood glucose. And it's just really cool to be able to to witness what's going on in your body and see the effects of intensity on blood glucose levels. Um, But yeah, so with the half marathon, obviously that's moderate intensity exercise, I guess. And uh, my blood sugar was completely stable the whole time. But I will, I will say that even fasted exercise, like, so I, I could run pretty low with my blood glucose and I can exercise fine and I can sustain high intensities, which kind of flies in the face of what I guess people believe because they think that you need to have that glucose on board. And, um, 
to sustain high intensity exercise. But I do think that there is, I think there is adaptations that, that are promoting my ability to sustain high intensities, even though my blood glucose is quite low. Um, and I think, I think there is something to do with ketones and, and fat oxidation, um, and being able to sustain high intensities. But I just think that the research is too new to be able to draw any conclusions about that. Before we carry on with the serious conversation, what, what was your time for the half marathon? <laughs> uh, I think it was like just over two hours. I think it was like 201 or 202 or something like that. I honestly didn't even, yeah, like I ran on like maybe five to 10 runs in preparation for it. And, uh, and then I just, I just went for it. It was really fun. I, I'm happy I did it, but I retired. I retired. I don't know. I retired my shoes quickly after that. (laughs) You'd be surprised. You wait, give it a couple of years. You'll be back. Um, we have, uh, for listeners interested, uh, we have a blog on the second meal effect, uh, that they can read, but also, um, it's interesting. You mentioned the insulin and, uh, time to normalize, uh, insulin levels as well postprandial because we've got some interesting like fairly big data looking at risk of rebound hypoglycemia which is what kind of what you're talking about and the risks uh, of seeing that biochemically on a CGM from our data set uh, is highest in the sort of one hour range and then reduces at about the three to three and a half hour range so in and around what you're talking about is what we're seeing for risk of biochemical rebound hypoglycemia. So super cool to see that in a research setting in the you know lab and then take into the real world using CGM and big data sets, right? Because that's the stuff that I, I I think we need to get to with research is like, okay, we've seen this in the lab. Now, how does that actually apply right. in the fields? And let's look at this in a free living situation where we're not controlling things and and look at risk and, you know, its significance. We, we've also got a blog on that. So I'll link to both those in the show notes, but it was super cool to hear that. Yeah, so thank and you. I'll, I will add that. Um, it depends on like the timing of carbohydrates. So I talked about pre pre exercise carbohydrates, but if you initiate exercise in the fasted state and then are are taking in glucose, um, that's a different story actually. Like the, the you'll have a blunted response, so you won't you won't see that dramatic shift in fuel substrate utilization, and you're essentially so carbohydrate intake isn't sparing glycogen like it's or it's not sparing muscle glycogen which people think that it is but it's not so when you're when you're exercising in the fasted state your muscle glycogen is the exact same of whether you've been fed or not um it's really just your liver glycogen that you would be sparing if you're ingesting carbohydrates so if you initiate in the fasted state you're already activating lipolysis. You've already activated all the pathways associated with fasted exercise. And now you're just taking in glucose. And that's essentially just like bypassing the need to um, upregulate hepatic glucose output. So your, your body's like, okay, sweet. I have glucose in my bloodstream. Your liver doesn't have to be spitting out more glucose. And that is associated with fatigue. So for endurance athletes, glucose intake during exercise will promote longer like a, for a time trial, you'd or like if you were going to exhaustion, um, you would be able to go longer. But it takes a long, like you need to be going beyond two hours for you to see that effect. So you could you could do just fine in the fasted state up until liver glycogen can no longer. So you have to exceed the capacity of liver glycogen to maintain glucose homeostasis for the ingestion of carbohydrates to be having an effect on fatigue 
um, as far as like what the research is showing. Um, I don't have any like personal anecdotes or anything, but uh, the the glucose ingestion seems to increase time to fatigue, but only after liver glycogen has been de- depleted. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that's a, the classic studies from Coyle and, and the likes looking at, at the depletion there versus uh, placebos. Right. It's, it's all really, uh, yeah, it's cool stuff. I'm a big fan. But let's talk exogenous ketones. We recently, we have, we're recording this before we released the podcast, but we had recently had Brian McMahon from Delta G Ketones on the podcast uh, and really interested in exogenous ketones. There, there's a lot happening in sports performance space, preventing overreaching, looking at, uh, you know, uh, EPO levels, all sorts of stuff. Talk to us about your exogenous ketone use. Let's, uh, right. Let's I, I will admit I'm pretty far removed from that literature these days. Um, so it's I'm okay. sure that podcast will detail a lot more about it, um, or about exogenous ketones, but the exogenous ketones that I personally use are just ketone salts. So ketone salts are cool. just beta hydroxy. So we produce three different ketone bodies in the body, beta hydroxybutyrate butyrate, acetoacetate, and then some of that will be spontaneous decar- spontaneously decarboxylated into acetone, which we breathe off in our breath. That's why we can measure breath acetone with breath acetone meters. And that is an indicator of ketosis because some of the ketones that we're making, it, the higher the concentration in our breath, the more that's being removed um, spontaneously in the body. So that's a measure of, of ketosis. And we're actually I'm measuring breath acetone in our studies as well. Um, but so we produce mainly beta hydroxybutyrate and that's the ketone body that you will see in most ketone supplements, unless it's um, some of the ketone esters are, are made from butane diol, which is a precursor to beta hydroxybutyrate. So when we ingest it, our liver will convert that into uh, beta hydroxybutyrate and that beta hydroxybutyrate, the reason why, uh, that's the one found in the supplements is again, that's the one we produce in the greatest abundance in the body, but also the one, um, that actually, well, we actually convert it back to acetoacetate in order to burn it as fuel, but that's the one that's circulating in our blood. So that's why when we're measuring blood ketones, we're measuring beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, but anyways, so I take personally ketone salts, although I do have ketone aid, which is the butane dial. Um, So ketone esters, I'm sure, again, Brian discussed all of this on the podcast, but ketone esters are more potent than ketone salts. Like you can elevate your blood ketones um, to a greater extent. Ketone salts are cheaper. They're more palatable. They definitely taste better. Um, And I, I personally just see ketones as like if I'm in the fasted state and I take ketones, I'm essentially just supporting the fasted state. So while we're fasting, so I don't follow a strict ketogenic diet. I do follow a pretty low carb diet, but that's just kind of, it just happens naturally based on my food choices. I don't necessarily like strategically reduce carbohydrates anymore. I have done a strict ketogenic diet for long lengths of time, um, but most mornings I am in ketosis. So when I test my ketone levels randomly and sporadically most mornings i am in like a low level of ketosis anywhere from like 0.3 to one millimolar it can range from there 
um, which would be a, a low level of, of ketosis, especially for not necessarily purposely restricting carbohydrates. So I think that's another thing with intermittent fasting is that you can, you can use intermittent fasting as a way to kind of be making these metabolic switches and going in and out of ketosis. And personally, I like the feeling of being in ketosis. I can, I can subjectively make the association. Sometimes I'm like on this like euphoric high and I like to confirm it to be like, oh, I think I'm in ketosis. And then I test my blood ketones and I'm like, yes, I was in ketosis. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if I'm biased or placebo or what, but I, I do think that like I function better in the morning when I'm in a, in a greater, deeper level of ketosis. But anyways, ketone, exogenous ketones. So exogenous ketones. So we make ketones from in the liver when we've reduced glucose and we've reduced insulin for certain lengths of time. Um, but we can also take them exogenously and you can take them alongside carbohydrates. You don't have to be on a ketogenic diet. You don't have to be in the fasted state and perhaps their application may even be more appropriate alongside carbohydrates. If you're talking about from like an athletic perspective, you're just kind of like adding another fuel. Um, you could be sparing glycogen or promoting glycogen resynthesis post-exercise. Um, I think there was a study showing that exogenous ketones promoted greater glycogen resynthesis in recovery from exercise. But then you mentioned the overreaching and there's that POF study um, showing that it pre um, prevented the symptoms of overreaching. So it could be really helping with recovery. I think it's pretty um, accepted at this point that exogenous ketones are not going to help with performance um, per se. But I don't know, perhaps if you are super adapted to a ketogenic diet and there are, and like even that's a bit of like a hand wavy, like adapted, like what does that even mean? Um, and like, I don't have a good answer for you other than maybe you have more MCT transporters on your cell membranes, meaning that you can take in more ketones, or maybe there are mitochondrial adaptations because we need mitochondria to burn um, ketones and use them as fuel. So I'm not dismissing any of these adaptations that could be potentially associated with long-term uh, ketogenic diets or even exogenous ketones. Like we don't know, like what if, what if you take them for a long time? What if you're exposing your cells to exogenous ketones for long periods of time are you adapting are your cells like trying to upregulate the transporters and trying to upregulate mitochondria so that we can use them i i don't know we don't have those studies as far as i'm aware um but i but i do think that exogenous ketones also could just be another way to fuel the brain during exercise and maybe there's perhaps some delayed fatigue associated with being able to be cognitively functioning and i think those those studies actually i think have they've done a lot of cognitive was, outcomes with exogenous ketones yeah there was one recently that was released we actually talked to brian about it, it was it's like a week or two old maybe a little bit longer oh, okay uh, looking at looking at um i think it's focus levels uh or dopamine levels of both in like end stage uh ultramarathon type performance with uh exogenous ketones which as you said makes sense but but the research on higher intensity stuff is pretty equivocal at best maybe you know maybe performance decrement um at least from from my reading uh, right but let's get 
let's get to like some of the fun stuff uh, or more fun stuff, less serious stuff that probably more, more of what we're known for. I had a question. Do you have any vastus lateralis left or is it all gone from muscle biopsies? <laughs> I know I don't have much muscle to spare and yet for some reason I'm volunteering my muscle. Um, but no, I've only had three biopsies. So is that it? I, only three? I know. Explain um, a muscle biopsy to Zylan. He'll be interested in this. <laughs> so there's a needle about this, probably like 10 centimeters or 10 inches. I don't know. Anyways, it's like this those are, those are very different lengths. I know. <laughs> that's, that's about 10 centimeters. <laughs> 10 centimeters? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, 10 centimeters, I would say. And it is like the width of a small baby nail, pinky nail. And it goes inside your leg into your muscle tissue. And then there's someone on the other, it's attached to a tube, this needle, and there's a hole in the end of the, the biopsy needle. And there's someone sucking, like syringe sucking muscle out of your You did say leg. this was volunteer, you did this voluntarily. You aren't even getting paid for this, right? Actually, one of the studies I did get paid, but no, the other one I, I volunteered. <laughs> I thought these were your students. <laughs> yeah, well, I was a participant in their study and they uh, ethically have to pay their participants. That's uh, awesome. But uh, yeah, no, it's pretty disturbing. It doesn't actually hurt because your leg is completely numb. But I watched the video of my own muscle biopsy over and over again, which I regret. And it's like it's just burned into my memory and it's so disturbing. Sometimes I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep and thinking about it and like actually want to like my stomach starts churning at the visuals of, of the biopsy needle going into my leg. But anyways, so yeah, you pull out a piece of muscle tissue and then that allows us to study my uh, muscle under awesome. different Changes. conditions. Yeah, I've yeah. had a I've had a bone marrow biopsy. I'll I'll have, I'll have you know. And when I saw the doctor walk in with the size of that needle, I would have run, man. If it wasn't for my health and I needed to do this, I would have run very fast. And that was not pleasant. I think that would probably be worse than a muscle biopsy. <laughs> so I think you take the pain, <laughs> the pain medal here. One one of them is voluntary though, which is the key here. Um, True. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's. Let's talk a little bit about Super Sapiens. You mentioned some of the stuff you'd already learned, higher intensity exercise, uh, lifting, uh, you know, raising your glucose. Anything else you've learned since using Super Sapiens that you've sort of has found interesting or, or revolutionary or anything like that? Uh, don't wear it in a cold ice baths because sometimes the temperature will be too low for the, the sensor to function. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I a learned sensor that. There's a uh, thing on the bottom of the box that tells you sensor ranges and it's not particularly low. Uh, pro tip as well for those using, you need to wrap up uh, over the sensor a little bit uh, layers when you're going outside in the middle of winter in Canada particularly or in the Northern Hemisphere in general because uh, it does get too cold. So we do have some people who run and, and find that to be the case. Yeah, and I don't know if this is related to temperature changes in the sensor um, or if it's actually physiological, I should have tested against my blood, but, uh, sauna and cold plunge doing the cold 
and then sauna and then cold and then sauna. It's actually really cool if you're wearing a CGM because you see it going spike up, spike down, spike up, spike down. Um, so that was cool. But then, yeah, with exercise, like with food and everything, my CGM data is quite boring um, since I do follow a relatively <laughs> low carb diet. And uh, I don't, I think what's cool is that when I see my blood glucose really low and I feel incredible, I like knowing that I clearly have ketones on board. I'm good at using fats. I, I think you like we have the old starvation studies where if you are in a starvation, starvation ketosis, so like long day. I think it was like a 40 day fast. So these people are in like deep ketosis and they infused insulin to put them into like basically a level of glucose that would put someone into a hypoglycemic coma and they were completely asymptomatic for hypoglycemia. So we know that ketones are a really cool alternative fuel for the brain and we can function really well and perhaps even greater than just fully running on carbohydrates and uh i like this like area of like just expanding our knowledge and not being so set because i know like there are a lot of views on glucose and ketones and we do have opinions but i love being like a young scientist and just being open to everything and i think like everyone could learn a lot more if we were more open and without like casting judgment or things like that i i don't know how i just got into this little existential uh rabbit hole coming from the fact that i like seeing my glucose low but it's just something that i think about a lot in that like we should be we should all be just trying to understand things a bit more instead of like passing things off like even there was this recent paper on the crossover Crossover effect with low carbohydrate. I was going to ask you about this Andrew Kutnick study, right? Kutnick yeah. works, etc. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk to Andrew. I want to talk to Andrew on the podcast. I think he's a friend of yours, so we're going to have to yes. offline about that. But, oh, uh, I will introduce you. Andrew is excellent. This, he's wonderful. He's a brilliant. He, yeah, yeah, awesome on podcasts. Well worth listening. He was on Zach Bitter's podcast recently, talking about the study uh, and some other things. So, well, uh, human performance outliers podcast. Well worth listening. So for the listeners who don't know, basically everyone thought the crossover point when you use more glucose, when your glucose oxidation went up and your fat oxidation went down, there's a crossover point. And that was thought to be about 65%, I think, of VO2 max. And then yeah. in Andrew's study with a longer term adaptation, I think it was four weeks worth of adaptation to a lower carb diet, he saw that change to, is it 75% or 85% where the crossover was? Yeah, I think was? it was up to like 85%. Yeah, which is huge. And it's pretty revolutionary in our understanding of... Um, adaptation to lower carbohydrate availability and diets because we thought that, that didn't happen and you know the, the knock-on higher fat diets has been that they don't necessarily improve performance perhaps uh at best equivocal perhaps decrease performance right and some of louise burke's work has sort of sh suggested some of that so it's cool to see this coming out better understanding exactly and that like just feeds into like the open-mindedness it's like why don't we want to just like learn more like the athlete population represents like the smallest pop, like the smallest amount of people in the world. Like, why don't we just like figure out what our options are for the general public? Like, I'm not trying to get that two second benefit on like the end of a run or something. Like most people don't care about that. Like they just want to be healthy and they want like to get 
benefits out of their exercise. And just like, I think that pushing too much messaging around things that might be not related to the general public just confuses people. And like the average crossfitter like going or like the average person going to the gym is not going to care if their low carbohydrate diet is impairing performance by like four seconds like that doesn't matter <laughs> so that's that's not going to be the thing that causes your your, your lack of success right because it's you're not you're not optimized that level yeah right? so exactly. if it's your day-to-day variation will be higher than that anyway regardless of carbohydrate intake and like that study though that so the crossover point which their that paper was a review on but was really motivated by their their study the four-week training study um and in that study they showed that there were athletes with pre-diabetic levels of blood glucose um because they were wearing CGMs when they were on adapting to the high carb diet. And that was completely ameliorated when they went to the low carb diet. And so there is a discussion that needs to be had between exercise performance and metabolic health, that that is the conversation that needs to be promoted to the general public. And perhaps, and, and, and that, that study is really really important to highlight that there are populations of athletes that you can be training a ton and yes you're probably like look healthy on the outside but you don't know what's going on on the inside and it just because ex- you're just because you're exercising doesn't necessarily mean you're protected against everything um and so i think like andrew will be able to speak to all of this to a greater extent and i'm excited for you guys to have yeah. that conversation but but that, sure. that is an important conversation to have as well. And we need to consider health in all of all of this and not just think like you're protected against, like just because you're an athlete, you can down Coca-Colas and, and drink yeah. sugary drinks, et cetera. The, you know, the, the running boom did us a disservice there. There was some thought that if you could run a marathon, you'd be, you know, your heart would be healthy at one point and it's just, just isn't the case. Right. Um, I think, uh, yeah, there's fascinating stuff. I mean, Paul Larson's recent paper on uh, looking at the effect of ins- the insulin resistance as a result of long, sort of low intensity exercise has been really interesting for me to look at in the context of, is it to do with free fatty acids or whatever else? It's, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to dig, dig into that. I don't know what study that was. What was it? It's okay. I'll send it to you. We'll get, we'll okay. offline about this. It's, okay. it's really interesting though. You'll, you'll, you'll love it. I'm like trying to get my head around it, but it's really cool. Okay. Um, Chrissy, I think we need to get to the rush round. Uh, we okay. get to this with all of our guests. So a couple of quick questions around Super Sapiens use and a few other things. Uh, we'll start off. Do you have a nickname? Yes, it's Crit or Critter. So my dad okay. called me Critter as a kid, and then I made my hotmail K Critter, and then everyone <laughs> like in it. high school called me Critter. I like it. I, like I was going to ask you how old That's you were, awesome. but you've just told me now with the hotmail answer. So. <laughs> she gave herself away with a 2010 in, her, in high school i was like jeez so, uh, i was like wow I, I was i didn't know hotmail was still around when you're in high school i'm glad to hear it had a little bit longer life than my my time in high school so um cool. do you scan over or under when you uh, scan the sensor are you over or under over good so we've only ever had one under and that person's not welcome back so you, you are welcome back <laughs> And how do you have your coffee? Oh, this changes. I, I have moods. 
I, I posted the other day, I have coffee moods. Um, but I do like to froth up a bit of nut milk. That changes too. I make my own nut milk. And cool. Which delicious. nut? I do mix a lot of the time, but walnut is my favorite, I think. It, Very interesting. It is interesting. Um, but I... I've, I've confirmed over time that I do like it. I, I keep questioning myself, but no, I confirm that I do like it. <laughs> um, but I will, I'm not shy from putting MCTs in my coffee every once in a while. And that comes back to the exogenous ketones because MCTs are converted to ketones upon um, consumption. So they can be a cheap and easy alternative if uh, you want some extra ketones in the morning. Were you ever a bulletproof coffee person? Oh, 100%. You, any biohack, so any like cool thing that's promoted, cool. Um, I've tried it and now I've come back like to <laughs> yeah. the point. Now that I'm in academia, I like cringe at all the things I did, but like at the same but that's time, the... I love it. Self-experimentation is the basis of academia. That's how they discovered Helico back to pylori. That's all of the things. So it's the basis of it. Oh, you will be happy to hear I once, my first ever trail race, I raced, uh, I had a Bulletproof coffee, raced it, and in my bottles, I had a BCAAs and MCT oil and water mixed. And uh, so suffice to say, when I was, you know, I had a, I was in a lot of zone five hiking uphill with a heart rate of like 190 something, and then ended up bonking about eight Ks before the finish in the last 40 minutes. So I was really struggling. So it was oh, about wow. a two hour run. So it was two hours of relatively high intensity zone three and above. And then, uh, yeah, eventually I ran out of, uh, glycogen stores unsurprisingly. Just other trying things, so. to do it off of MCTs. <laughs> yeah. And branch chain, I mean, I figured the branch chain amino acids might give me a little bit of, uh, uh, gluconeogenesis, but yeah, probably not in hindsight. So it was fun. Yeah. Would you eat, would you eat before, uh, would you eat before a CrossFit event and how long before would you eat? Oh, I don't know. That was my question for my half marathon too. Cause I was like, I feel like I should maybe eat something, but I was like, but every run I've done up to this has been fasted. So I'm kind of scared to introduce a new variable. And so I did a fasted, but cross it. Um, I would take exogenous ketones and like maybe some like a banana. Okay. Pre, not during. You're not going to take any carbohydrates during. Oh, during I would. Yes. I, if I, okay. Yeah. Cause CrossFit is like a whole other beast. You need to recover between events. And in that case, I would do some maybe fructose and sucrose ingestion just to get as much yeah. absorption and glycogen resynthesis. Yeah. Are you going to the games this year? Uh, yes, I have hotels booked and yet I missed the ticket the ticket sales. So if anyone out there is selling their CrossFit Games <laughs> tickets, um, I am I think, a I willing think, buyer. I think you got the wrong audience here, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? There's probably some crossover. But yes, I go every yeah. year and it's the best. Awesome. I still need to get there. I haven't been. Um, what about post, uh, post event? What, what is your go-to meal? Like post-training, post-event, something like that. Big, you know, just finished my half marathon or something like that. What are you eating? You're making me seem like I'm an athlete, like a post-event. I'm not an athlete. Um, but I <laughs> eat eggs every day for breakfast with an avocado. So awesome. I train, I drink coffee, I train, and then I eat eggs and avocado. That, 
Sounds like a pretty good That's existence to me. And you tend your and you tend your garden and you go for walks in the garden and then you cold plunge in your lake. Yep. We need us we need to swap lives. Um we need to swap <laughs> lives. I want a garden. Oh, I want to be able to grow my own stuff. Cool. Well, Christy, this was a great chat, man. It was lovely, lovely having you. You never know. You prep the chat. You never know how it's going to turn out. And, yeah, this was really, really interesting. I mean, I didn't understand half the words you guys were saying, but the ones I did understand, I really enjoyed. So thanks for coming on here. No, thank you so much for having me. I hope there was at least some sort of value out of any, all the stuff I just spat out at you guys. <laughs> it's all good. Don't sweat it. People will love it. People uh, love hearing podcasts. We love hearing from people like you. Love the care. And, and I think it's important that people start to think. I, I think you know, if I was to say one thing that people need to take away is this is something I talk to people about, but you highlighted it really well, which is like there is a difference between performance and health at times. There is some crossover, but mm. not always. Mm. and you need to understand where your priorities lie on that. And it's going to be a percentage, right? I usually talk to people, is it 50-50? Is it 60-40? Is it, you know, are you exercising solely for health or is there a performance component to that? And how big is that? And then where do you decide to trade off? Because there are going to be some things that are going to be bad for performance, which are going to be better for your health and vice versa. And you need to be really clear on that so you can make that decision because they're not always the same. And if you're not clear on that decision, you're going to make decisions based on whatever moves you in the moment. Like, I just want to go faster. And that could be a detriment to your long-term health, which is something you need to you know, consider. If you're happy to make that, right? Their elite athletes are really happy to make that trade-off because they that's their living, right? And it's going to impact their life in a different way. Fine. But if you're not an elite athlete, you need to really consider that stuff because it's important. Absolutely. So I think that, that message is uh, loud and clear from you. So thank you so much, Christy. Really yeah. appreciate Another it. Another message though, before I sign off, is like just this idea of like an optimal protocol i think we need to accept that there's just so many different methods the principles are usually the same but the methods can change and like when it comes to exercise intensities like i think that that's just something i've become more appreciative of is that like someone promoting something as optimal is usually not coming from a space of it like of, of viewing everything holistically. And uh, I think we can, we can feel more comfortable in our choices and have more confidence in what we're doing if we um, just accept that there are many ways to skin a cat. It's the, the galpinism, right? The, the principles are few, the methods are many. Right. It's yeah, what uh, exactly. Andy Galpin loves. I love it. It's, mm-hmm. He's a smart dude. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. There we go. Christy Storachuk. David, one of my big takeaways from that is it was almost revelatory and it really shouldn't be. I loved what she was saying, how we are so focused generally with all this work on high-level athletes. But that's such a small part of the population and we aren't focused enough maybe on making the general population healthier. Yeah, I mean, look, it... It's a really tough one and it's 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 a really important point. I think we are seeing more problems and more and more problems with health. So we do need to solve those problems for sure. But there's, you know, the money needs to come from somewhere. And the money in sport is huge, right? And we all want to see our team win and we all want to see that. And there's the teams want to win, right? They want to spend money on whatever and they want to spend money to win. So so it goes both ways of this. We'll see both ends. And hopefully, you know, the majority of our listeners probably live in the middle of those two things, somewhere between the two. Um and, and many of society do as well, right? If we think about it like a bell curve um, and maybe the bell curve is slightly skewed one way towards disease maybe in, in the modern society. So I say all that to say, 
I'm hoping that the two ends of the spectrum that we're researching really inform the middle a little bit as well. The challenge is um, navigating that for people. And this is kind of the percentage thing I mentioned at the end is like you need to really understand where you sit on that spectrum of how much performance do you want to do versus health and where does that lie and, and what compromises are you willing to make based on that? So for instance, it probably, if I wanted to run the fastest marathon, I could, I would probably be better off with less upper body mass. I'm not big in the upper body, but having less of it would probably be helpful. Now I'm not willing to make that sacrifice because a, I, it wouldn't be good for my mental health. I enjoy lifting weights, particularly a little bit of upper body weights and B, I don't think it's good for my long-term health to have a scrawny upper body. I think the muscle mass is important. I think the bone mineral density is important. So I don't want to make those sacrifices. Therefore, I have to sacrifice some performance by definition. And you need to understand those sort of all those trade-offs. There might be many of them, right? So you need to be really clear on that sort of thing. Can you explain to me what she was talking about Um it was, I found it actually very interesting where you initiate your training fasted and then you take carbohydrates as you go during the session. Yeah, I mean, we've got quite a few blogs that sort of touch on this and, and it's definitely been some of our advice. Um, but in essence, there are two ways that carbohydrates are removed. Well, there's only one way carbohydrates are removed from the bloodstream fundamentally, which is via GLUT4 receptors. These are the, they are in muscles, they take carbohydrate out of the uh, the blood. And of course, there are other transporters that take it out for other organs, but for muscles, which is a huge metabolic organ, GLUT4s do this. GLUT4s are activated by two methods. One is insulin dependent, which means you need insulin. And one is insulin independent, which means you don't need insulin. And the second one, the insulin independent method is fundamentally based around muscle contraction. So this is why walking after a meal helps uh, to absorb glucose. And so similarly, if you don't want to have insulin acting too much, if you can start to exercise first and then eat carbohydrates, what you'll find is most of that impact or most of what's required to remove glucose from the system is going to be the insulin independent mechanisms. So it's going to be the contraction of your muscles that removes glucose from the blood rather than the effects of insulin. And that's what's helpful because the effects of insulin mean that you don't mobilize fat as much. So that's kind of what she was talking about is if you eat beforehand, then you're going to have higher insulin levels and less lipolysis, so fat burning. Um, whereas if you start exercising first, then you're better off in that respect and you start to have, um, yeah, you'll have the carbohydrates be absorbed without the need for as much insulin. Yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you again for putting that together. That was really fascinating. Um, I really wanted to get into her episode when I started researching this episode and getting on her Instagram and yeah, I was keen to hear more from her. So thanks, man. Thanks for putting that together. That was another episode of the Super Sapiens podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email david at supersapiens.com. You can also join us on Discord. We've got a channel over there. Rate the podcast, share it with a friend, and we'll catch you on the next one.